1: One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast Whenever you say something, other people react to it Taking my breath away, Aaron Fern
2: Lundquist joins me Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone Welcome in yeah. to episode 4 oui the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, August 30th, 2021, people. And we got some college football to react to. That is right. Week zero is in the books. We will talk. Not we're not we're not gonna go crazy. We got months and months to talk college football, but Week zero's in the books. Yes, I am going to crush Nebraska. I've defended Scott Frost. He is indefensible after what happened on Saturday and specifically his refusal to look for a new quarterback. Yes, I will crush my alma mater, UConn, as well, which took all of last year off, did nothing but practice, and is somehow worse this year. I will talk about uh, UCLA very briefly, then I'll talk a little bit about this crazy high school football story, which one of my guys wrote about at AaronTorresOnline.com, Aaron Torres Media officially launched last week. Uh, Did you see this high school football story where basically this school in Ohio convinces ESPN that they have a bunch of big time recruits, put us on TV, we'll do really well And next thing you know, it's basically a fake high school that isn't good, doesn't have D1 recruits, so I will tell you about that story. We'll take a quick break. Speaking of crazy, we will talk Dino Gaudio versus Chris Mack as the Louisville coach that extortion case is finally resolved. And from there, from there, We will transition to an incredible interview with Phil Steele of Phil Steele Magazine. If you follow college football, Phil Steele is an icon. He runs that preview magazine, that's like three or 400 pages, and he tells us all about the process of putting together that magazine calling up head coaches, uh, going through depth charts, going player by player by player until we get the final product there in late June, early July. And I'm just telling you, you will hear the passion and love for college football that Phil Steele has in his voice. Kind of reminds me a little bit of John Rothstein on the college basketball side. I love John. I love his passion for college basketball. And Phil Steele is very much the same. Couple quick announcements before we get to uh, Scott Frost and Nebraska. One, make sure, uh, first of all, the Aaron Torres media, it, it's launched, okay? Great opening week. Thank you guys for the feedback. From now on, all my writing is at AaronTorresOnline.com. We got a little bit of a blog going. We got people contributing. My buddy John Frisella, the great fantasy football writer. Uh, Austin Montgomery is going to do some uh, college or NFL gambling. I'll do my, NFL ga- or my college football gambling picks. I'll have any columns up there. AaronTorresOnline.com and kind of in the same vein check out my new coll- my new college football podcast will be launching this week it is CFB betting with Aaron Torres if you uh, college football betting with Aaron Torres if you just Follow me on Twitter. You will see, but if not, make sure uh, to pay attention because the first episode will launch this week. We will start early in the week with some final previews of some conferences. From there, we will preview week one on Wednesday. So really fired up. College Football Betting with Aaron Torres will launch this week. All right, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is college football's back, baby. You ready? You excited? You excited? You happy? You having a good time? It was great to have college football back. It was great to have fans in the stands. And it was just great to have college football. Well, great for everybody except for Nebraska. Because in a make-or-break year, in a year where you have zero margin for error, Nebraska lost their season opener in Week 0 to Illinois. But it wasn't just that they lost. It was that they lost in the most Nebraska way possible, in which penalties doomed them, in which turnovers doomed them, in which I would argue they were the better team but continue to beat themselves time and time and time again, resulting in a 30-22 to 22 loss. And so I want to get into all the details in a minute, but I just want to say this. Nebraska, there are no more excuses. I've defended Scott Frost, but what happened on Saturday was inexcusable, and really it's just a microcosm for what has happened under Scott Frost throughout his four seasons at Nebraska. First off, I would just say this. In terms of the game itself, you know it's a big year for Scott Frost. You know he has to, even outside of the NCAA rules, you gotta at least get to a bowl game. I'm not saying he gotta go 10-2, and 2, but you gotta at least get to six and six. You gotta go to a bowl game, and that was outside of the NCAA rules violations, let alone what actually happened with the NCAA stuff. And I will say that in terms of a season opener, This is about as good as you can ask for if you're Scott Frost. Now, yeah, you don't want to play a Big Ten opponent if you don't have to, but everybody's playing in the Big Ten just about to open the season. Ohio State's playing at Minnesota. Uh, Iowa and Indiana are playing. Uh, Michigan State and Northwestern are playing. So it's not as though you're the only one opening with a big, Big Ten game. But with that said, it was about as best case of a scenario as you could possibly ask for. You didn't get Ohio State, you didn't get Michigan, you didn't get Penn State, you didn't get Wisconsin, you got Illinois, which was one of the least talented, if not the least talented teams in college football last year. On top of that, you get them when they are breaking in a new head coach in Brett Bielema. A new head coach who has been out of college football for about six or seven years now because he got run out of Arkansas because he stunk. And on top of that, while this is something nobody could have predicted, Illinois starting quarterback got hurt right at the beginning of the game. And obviously, look, you, you don't want anybody to get hurt, and you hate to see it, but it is the reality of college football. It is the reality of football. Uh, Nebraska didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't a dirty play. So you are in a must-win game in week zero. You have a, a really bad opponent, first-year head coach, and they lose their starting quarterback. Doesn't get much better than that. And I would say to take it a step further, at least in defense of Nebraska, they didn't kind of look good at the beginning. Uh, They go up at 1.9 to 2, but even when they went up 9 to 2, you could start to see them doing kind of the dumb Nebraska things that they've always done, and you're kind of like, they're leaving points on the field, this isn't good. First of all, score a touchdown, miss a PAT. Have the best kicker of the Big Ten, not great. Next possession, it's whatever it is, 3 to 2 or whatever, or uh, I guess it's 6 to 2 at that point. Uh, you drive into the red zone. Adrian Martinez just misses a couple easy throws that he should have missed. Typical Adrian Martinez. You leave points on the field, settle for a field goal. So at that point, it's nine to three. On top of that, the next Illinois possession. They're driving. What happens? Interception. Nebraska has the ball. They can drive to go up 16 to two. Instead, we all know what actually happened, which was on that play, on the interception, Nebraska had a stupid penalty in which the, the guy who, who sacked the quarterback jam, uh, slammed him into the ground. We know that's a point of emphasis. We know you can't do that. So not only is it not an interception, not only are you not driving to go up 16-2, to instead Illinois gets a 15-yard personal foul penalty, and then an extra 10 yards for taunting, tie the score, make it 9-9. to from there, we know what happens. Adrian Martinez has the ball. He's driving, doing his thing. Fumble, return, touchdown. You're down going into halftime. You're down by two touchdowns in the second half before you rally, but fall short, losing 30 to 22. And when I look at this game, again, it's vintage Scott Frost. Everything that everything that could go wrong at the worst possible time does. And I'll just be honest. I have been a Scott Frost defender but this game was vintage Scott Frost. There are no excuses, and as I look at his present and future with this program, if it doesn't work out, put aside the NCAA stuff, which we all know is serious and all that stuff. If it doesn't work out, he has nobody to blame but himself, and he has nobody to blame but himself for two very specific reasons. The first one, his team loses games because of self-inflicted penalties and self-inflicted problems. Now, I understand They're not at Ohio State's level. They're not at Wisconsin's level. They're not even at Iowa's level at this point. But they have lost a lot of winnable games because they just don't do the little things right. Bad penalties at the worst possible time, like the one that overturned the interception on Saturday. Bad turnovers at the worst possible time, like Adrian Martinez's fumble, which we'll get into Adrian Martinez in a minute boneheaded plays fumble to you know a bad snap on a mu- on a drive where they had to score late bad snap pushes them back 20 yards they end up making up for it but it's like these are the simple easy things that can be fixed and when it's year four and they're not fixed you know who that falls on that falls on scott frost that falls on the coaching staff you need to be better the second reason scott frost has nobody to blame but himself how is it year four and you have not gotten a better quarterback than Adrian Martinez? And how about this? How is it year four and you've not gotten a better quarterback than Adrian Martinez in the transfer portal era? Okay. So I know a lot of you might not follow Nebraska on a day to day, week to week basis. That's fine. But guess what? Nebraska, we, Scott Frost and Adrian Martinez have been there long enough where we all kind of know Adrian Martinez's deal incredibly gifted naturally. Big, strong runs can take hits. But he makes dumb mistakes at the worst possible times. And we saw it on Saturday when he had the fumble, when they're driving, when they have a chance to, to basically run out the clock in into halftime. And they gave Illinois seven points that they absolutely did not need to give Illinois. And it's all on. Adrian Martinez. But at this point, I don't blame Adrian Martinez because that's who he is. I had a bunch of Tennessee fans, and I mentioned, say he is, our, he is the Big Ten's Jared Garantano, the guy that would always turn the ball over at the worst possible time for Tennessee, and I don't think they're wrong. But at this point, you know who he is. How do you not have a better option? And I know last year he got benched for Luke McCaffrey and all this stuff, but we live in the transfer portal era. Think about all the guys from the portal that were available this offseason. I'm not going to name them all, but Tennessee got Joe Milton. Tennessee got uh, Hendon Hooker. Uh, Mackenzie Milton, who was Scott Frost's former quarterback at UCF, was available. Uh, Will Levis, who ended up in Kentucky, was available. I mean, think about all the guys that have entered the portal. And I know that some of them have ties. You know, Will Levis was probably always going to Kentucky. Um, and some of them have ties to a school or a program or whatever. But there, Jack Cohn, the starting quarterback at Notre Dame. There are so many guys that were in the portal. And it just cannot be year four. And you cannot still be relying on Adrian Martinez. You know who he is. He's not going to get the job done. And as I tweeted, and I'll tell you this. I tweeted this and I didn't get any pushback. Nobody argued with me. So you know it was a good tweet if nobody was trying to argue with me on social media. But how, in the transfer portal era, there is just no excuse for having a quarterback as bad as Adrian Martinez four years in and having no one else that is ready to potentially take the spot from him. And again, I know he got benched last year, but how do you not have anybody in the transfer portal era? And so when I look at the present and future Scott Frost, a couple things. One, I feel bad for the other 85 guys, 84 guys in the locker room besides Adrian Martinez because that, that is not a terrible football team. Now, I'm not saying they have Ohio State's talent. I'm not saying they have uh, certainly Clemson, Alabama, LSU talent. But if you watch the game, I thought they were the better team. The D-line was dominant early until Illinois got up and they could just lean on them and run the ball every play. The skill position guys were good enough. You have a couple of nice running backs there, Marquis Stepp, the freshman from uh, well, Marquis Stepp is the transfer from USC, but you had the freshman from Georgia, Irvin. Um, you had the big wide receivers. I mean, the big wide the, the wide receivers came to play. And so the talent is there, but it's the quarterback and it's on the coach that there is no competition to push this guy and that nobody was brought in in the offseason to potentially help this situation. It makes no sense. I don't get it. And Scott Frost has nobody to blame but himself. And I'll just tell you this. I've said it before. I don't know what's gonna happen with all the NCAA stuff. I think there's a reasonable chance it does not get resolved before the end of this season. And if it didn't, I thought Scott Frost, as long as he got to six and six and got to a bowl game, Uh, Nebraska would be able to keep them around but I don't know now because this was the game that you had to win look at the schedule for Nebraska this is Nebraska's schedule for the rest of the year by the way they play Oklahoma in the out of conference at Oklahoma good luck with that they play Michigan at home they play Ohio State at home then they have from the Big Ten West a game at Wisconsin. Iowa, who's ranked, and Minnesota, who brings back everybody, and we know P.J. Fleck can coach, not to mention even like toss-up games like Northwestern, which won the Big Ten West last year. So you look at that schedule. They're 0-1 in a game that they probably played the second or third worst Big Ten team on the certainly on their schedule, maybe even in the entire conference, second or third worst team in the entire conference. They just lost, and now you still have Ohio State, Oklahoma, Iowa all ranked in the top 15 Ohio State and Oklahoma are obviously national championship contenders you got Michigan say what you want about Michigan but they at least got dudes I don't know if they'll figure it out with Harbaugh and Minnesota is a really good team and so I look at this team I don't think they're going to a bowl game I don't think they're going six and six And Scott Frost has nobody to blame but himself. It can't be year four, and you can't be beating yourself. And more importantly than that, not only can it not be year four and you can't beat yourself, but on top of that, it can't be year four, and you can't have no other quarterback ready to go other than Adrian Martinez. I feel bad for the team. I feel bad for the other 84 guys in the locker room because the head coach has let them down. And I'm just telling you, it is not getting any better. For. nebraska all right let's get to a couple other week zero stories and we won't spend a ton of time on the rest of this one i want to get to dino gaudio versus chris mack but two uh we got plenty of time to talk college football here uh over the next uh what four five six months but one game that was played ucla we'll get to them in a minute did you see my alma mater the yukon huskies their triumphant return to the field on saturday did not go as planned. And there's a little bit of backstory. I know I told you uh I know I told you that uh last episode, UConn was one of only a handful of teams that did not play at all last year. As a matter of fact, they were one of only two teams that did not play at all last year. The other one was Old Dominion. New Mexico State actually got in two games in the spring. So essentially you had three teams that didn't play at all in the fall and two teams that have not played at all since the 2019 season. Yes, UConn is an independent. I don't wanna hear it though. Liberty got in 11 games last year. BYU got in 11 games last year. If UConn wanted to play a season, they could have last year. But they returned to the field and I'm not gonna lie. I was a little bit excited. Didn't think they were going to win. Fresno State is actually a legitimately good team. But I was hoping, with a year off, maybe things would turn around. Maybe they wouldn't be the worst team in major college football, in FBS football. Yes, they are still technically an FBS team. Unfortunately, I was wrong. UConn played. Final score against Fresno State, 45 to nothing. That is right. After two years off, after having two years to do nothing but practice and watch film, UConn lost 45 nothing in their return to the field. And what makes it worse is that the 45 nothing score really isn't reflective of how one-sided this game was. It could have been a lot worse. Here are the facts on UConn's loss to Fresno State. And I'm sorry, this is the only time I'm going to talk UConn football all year. But I mean, how can I not talk UConn football after what happened on Saturday? Here are some of the stats for the game. They lose 45-0. Okay, that's pretty bad. 107 yards of total offense. 107 yards of total offense against Fresno State. We're not talking Georgia. We're not talking Clemson. We're not talking Wisconsin who's got a good defense. We're talking Fresno State. They gave up 538, by the way, so they were outgained five yards to one uh, on the day. Two of 16 on third down, 2.4 yards per completion, which seems inconceivable. 1.1 yard per carry. UConn's return to the field after two years. 45-0 final score, One hundred seven yards of total offense, 2.4 yards per completion, 1.1 yard per carry. And you know what the saddest part of all this is? Let me tell you. I just said it a minute ago, nobody thought UConn was going to be great this year. But Randy Edsel, that snake oil salesman con artist, okay, this guy should be selling used cars because Randy Edsel, all last season and all of this fall, you know what his sales pitch has been? His sales pitch has been yeah, we didn't play, but it is actually good for the program. It is actually good for UConn football to not be playing, forget those pesky games, because the best thing that we could do for this program right now is to actually sit this season out, learn the playbook, get bigger in the weight room. And I'm not making that up. That's not hyperbole. This is exactly what he said verbatim earlier this fall to the media on to the media in Connecticut. He said, put any game on. Really put those things on. And I think if you talk to the kids, they'll say, I feel so much stronger, I feel so much better physically, so much better from a mental standpoint knowing things. So glad that they feel better, Randy Edsel, okay? Because I can only imagine what would have happened if we had actually played last year, if they didn't have all that time in the weight room, if they didn't have all the time uh, working on the playbook. Can you imagine how bad it would have been if they didn't have all of last year? So yes, I'm yelling and screaming. I'm fired up, I promise. No more yelling and screaming. But let me just say this, the Randy Etzel era 2.0, it's over, it's worse than Space Jam 2, it's worse than Weekend at Bernie's 2, it's worse than The Hangover 2, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's awful, and the crazy part was when I was at UConn, UConn was actually a respectable program and Randy Etzel was actually believed to be like one of the really solid up and coming coaches in college football. I understand it's UConn. I understand it has its limitations, especially since they've gone independent. But here was what Randy Etzel did in his final four years at UConn. The first time around, he went nine and four in 2007, eight and five in 2008, eight and five in 2009, and eight and five in 2010. Four straight bowl games capped by the Fiesta Bowl in 2010. Fast forward to what is going on now, and by the way, when he was there, he also, it wasn't just that they played in the old Big East football conference, like they produced real pros. Dan Orlovsky was there uh, for one year while I was there. There was a guy named Darius Butler who played about seven, eight years. I actually just did a UConn alumni panel with Darius Butler. Tyvon Branch played in the NFL for seven, eight years. Kendall Reyes, Anthony Sherman, who still plays for the Kansas City Chiefs. I could go on and on and on and on and on. It was a respectable program. It wasn't Clemson. It wasn't Alabama. It wasn't Ohio State. It wasn't Georgia, LSU, Florida, Oklahoma, but it was respectable. It was like Northwestern. It was like uh, 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 Washington State. I don't know. It wasn't this though. Here is what Randy Edsel has done since he came back. 3-9, and 1-10, 2-10, last year off, 0-1, and one, so far this season which means for those keeping score at home six and 31 for Randy Edsel since he came back and you know what again the stats are even worse when you actually break them down than they look on paper because of those six wins here are the six wins that Randy Edsel has none last year because they opted out of the season 2019 they beat Wagner and UMass not exactly a run through the SEC West 2018 one win against Rhode Island his first year 2017 when he inherited a bunch of players from another coaching staff beats Holy Cross Temple and Tulsa. So in the last so 6 6 and 31 overall. 3 and 31 against FBS opponents, 3 of the wins coming against FCS teams, and then since the start of the 2018 season, one win against an FBS opponent, and it was UMass. You cannot make this stuff up, and the Randy Edsel 2.0 era is a disaster, and it is only getting worse. I understand UConn is a basketball school. I understand that they made this decision to go independent in football because of the fact that they had to save and protect their basketball programs by going back to the Big East. I truly believe it was the right decision. At the same time, let me also say I don't care how bad the finances are. I don't care what it is. I wish I had the money to personally buy Randy Edsel out of his contract because it is not working. It will not work. He is not the guy to get this program to any level of respectability going forward. And again, don't tell me it's because they're an independent. Hugh Freeze had Liberty at 10-1 and 1 in year two over there, okay? And I'm not saying we should be 10-1. and 1. I'm not saying UConn should be uh, uh, you know, in the top 25 but can you get me a coach that can go five and seven? Can you get me a coach that just every once, every four or five years can get me to six and six and a crappy bowl game? That's all I'm asking for. It's not too much. The good news, UConn's schedule does lighten up from here. Oh, wait a second. No, it doesn't. They play at Clemson November 13th uh, in what will likely be the biggest point spread in the history of college football. So yeah, how about my UConn Huskies? All right, let's wrap on a couple other topics. Uh, First of all, UCLA dominant. Hate to brag. I told you they'd be good, and and I really shouldn't brag. I don't want to do the Torres thing where I give myself too much credit. They played Hawaii. I think Hawaii is actually probably a little bit better than we realize. But at the same time, uh, UCLA looked really good. They were up... 24-3 24-3 after the first quarter, 31-3 at the half, final score 44-10, uh, and I, I just think they're going to be a really good team this year. I saw Kirk Herbstreet said he believes they will win the Pac-12 South, I've seen others hype them up, and I'm just telling you, I think this is finally the year that Chip Kelly has this thing turned around with 20 starters back, and as I told you uh, on the last episode, or I believe it was last week at some point, they went 3-4 and four last year. But they had USC beat, which was 5-0 during the regular season. They had Oregon. They, they easily could have beaten Oregon at Oregon in a game up there. And so I only bring it up to say Chip Kelly, has, unlike Scott Frost, Chip Kelly has this thing going in the right direction. It will be fascinating to see what they do against LSU this week. Obviously, I know I said it right off the top of the show, but LSU traveling uh, to L.A. early, trying to evacuate Louisiana. And again, to everyone in Louisiana, to anybody who knows anyone in Louisiana, I hope everybody's safe this game will take a backseat to the seriousness of what could potentially be going on in Louisiana but from a strictly football perspective I think it's fascinating LSU is going to be on the road for a week Uh, UCLA this is probably the best team they've had in six seven eight years Uh, and we'll see we'll see if they're legit but for the Pac-12 I will tell you, if they want some credibility on the national level, they got to win some of these out-of-conference games. Oregon plays at Ohio State. Washington plays at Michigan. UCLA obviously hosts LSU. So the Pac-12 is going to have plenty of opportunities over the next couple weeks to prove just how good they are. By the way... Shout out to your boy, Torres, who got absolutely dragged because of a UCLA take on social media. Uh, It was really funny. Obviously, if you watch the game, you know they showed some very not flattering pictures of the Rose Bowl during that game. And during that time, everyone was saying, oh, UCLA, worst fan base in America. Oh, Pac-12 football, nobody cares. And I can't really deny that the passion for Pac-12 sports and Pac-12 football doesn't match the Big Ten or the SEC and certainly most of the Big 12. But I tried to defend... UCLA and the Pac-12 on social media on Saturday and got destroyed, okay? So first of all, understand UCLA is on the quarter system. UCLA does not have students on campus yet, okay? So that is one element of this. You have 35 40,000 undergrads, none of which are on campus, none of which are coming to the games as of right now. And two, what I said was, for people who don't know the layout of geography, the, the, the layout and geography of LA, UCLA is actually a full probably hour or so from the Rose Bowl where they play. And that is probably without any traffic. If you have traffic, which you're going to have on a local game day, uh, we're talking now potentially an hour and a half, two hours, depending on what part of L.A. you're coming from. And from campus specifically, you're probably talking at least an hour, 15, hour 20 in traffic to go through L.A. And so I said that, and all I said on Twitter was very simply, uh, UCLA will never draw a crowd unless one of two things happens. They're either really, really, really good, if they are also potentially playing a really, really, really good team like LSU this weekend or three, if they're playing UCLA, those are the only times you UCLA is going to have fans in the stands, a full house at the Rose Bowl. And when I said that, I got destroyed on social media because everybody and I think you guys were mostly right was like, bro, we drive from all over to go see our team. And so I had people, tw- I had like Iowa State fans seem to be the most offended by this for some reason. Iowa State fans were like, oh, you know, I drive for six hours to go to Ames on a Saturday. Uh, Kansas State fans got involved. Everybody was just tearing up your boy Torres. So probably not the greatest take on my my end, But UCLA takes care of business uh, against uh, UCLA takes care of business against Hawaii. They will play LSU on Saturday. And again, we hope for safe travel for the LSU football team. And frankly, we just hope for safety across the Louisiana region with the hurricane coming in. All right, last little story from the football ranks, and it's not really a college football story. It's, it's more of a high school football story, but it's so good I have to tell you this story. Did you see this story about ESPN basically getting duped by putting a fake high school football team on their airwaves over the weekend? Uh, One of my guys wrote about it, Aaron Torres online. Incredible story. So let me give you a little bit of background. okay? so obviously, look, it's, it's that time of year. Football's ramping up. And usually what ESPN does is they usually use this this last full weekend before college football really kicks off. And they put on a bunch of really good high school games. So we get high school games this weekend. We get the launch of college football next weekend. And then the week after that, we get the NFL. And so on Sunday, ESPN has a game matching up IMG Academy and Bishop Sycamore from Ohio. IMG Academy, widely regarded as one of the best high school football programs in America. Bishop Sycamore, nobody knows anything about. Well, as it turns out, when I say nobody knows anything about them, even ESPN knows nothing about them. And so what ended up happening was this. This high school is kind of one of these shady, fly-by-night high schools, and I think I mentioned it, but I wrote one of our guys wrote about it at AaronTorresOnline.com, and this story blew up. But basically, Bishop Sycamore is essentially one of those fake high schools that um, you know, has all sorts of uh, you know uh, weird accreditation issues, and it's not a real high school, and it's not whatever. But they sold ESPN on, we have several Division I players on our roster, let us play IMG on national TV. And ESPN basically said, okay. And as it turned out, they have nobody, okay? They have a bunch of guys that aren't very good. They have a bunch of guys that are too old to play high school football in Ohio. They have a bunch of weird transfers and all that kind of stuff. And what ended up happening was during the game, during the game, ESPN's broadcasters basically said, look, we were told by this school that they have all these D1 prospects. We got here. We have checked our own recruiting database. We have checked other recruiting databases. We can't find a single player on this roster in any of the databases. And we were basically lied and we were basically duped. And then they went so far as to say it was a blowout. I think the final score was like 44 to nothing or something like that. But uh, they went so far as to basically admit, like, uh, we're actually worried about the safety of the players on this team playing IMG Academy so incredible story as ESPN is tricked into putting this high school football team on their airwaves the high school football coach tells ESPN and tells their partners like oh yeah we got a bunch of d1 prospects the broadcasters start doing research and all of a sudden they come to realize they have been totally duped IMG wins uh, and frankly it's it's actually in reality kind of a sad story like like the like again the the kids on the field for this other school it probably wasn't safe for them to be playing one of the best high school teams in the country the way that i understand how this happened and again you can read about it at aaron torres online.com but basically what happened was i guess espn has kind of a third party that organizes these games for them and the third party never really looked into this school and that is how you get bishop sycamore against img academy on espn espn duped into putting a fake team on their airwaves All right, what I want to do now, take a quick break. I do very quickly want to get to the Chris Mack, Dino Gaudio stuff, and it happened on Friday. We don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but it was just a wild, wild, wild story. We got the audio of the alleged, not even alleged, it it happened, but the extortion attempt by Dino Gaudio. So what I want to do is take a quick break, just spend five or ten minutes talking about that, and then we will get to Phil Steele. All right, everybody, I am back. Uh, good to be back, good to be back. And, and one thing about this show, I, I have told you over the last couple of weeks is that, yes, we are going to transition into college football, but if there's ever a college basketball topic that is relevant, I am absolutely going to discuss it with you, and we certainly got one of those over the last couple of days as we finally got resolution to a topic that we've actually been talking about on this show. We've probably hit on it at least two or three times, And it's been going on for about two, two and a half, three months. And that is the attempted extortion of Louisville head basketball coach Chris Mack by his former assistant Dino Gaudio. That is right. Never a dull day with the Louisville basketball program. And as I said, on Friday, we finally got a little bit of closure to it. Uh, Dino Gaudio was actually found, uh, was given probation in the case, so he will not serve jail time. Chris Mack actually got a six-game suspension because in the process of being extorted, Dino Gaudio, his assistant coach, revealed that there had been some very minor NCAA rules violations. But that's not really why we're talking about it. Why we're talking about it is because we got the audio of Dino Gaudio say that 10 times fast I guess the word uh, audio is in Dino Gaudio's name but we got the audio of Dino Gaudio attempting to extort Chris Mack and my goodness you talk about just uh audio gold unbelievable I posted it on Aaron online.com a lot of you commented on it saw that saw it all that good stuff and so let's break it down and so it's a little bit of backstory. You know, first of all, uh, Louisville coming off a very disappointing season. They finished 13-7 and overall in this crazy COVID year, have three or four games canceled because of COVID. As a matter of fact, you know, Gaudio actually talked about it on the recording. Hey, basically, if we, uh, if we play those games, we're in much better position. But they finished 13-7, and and they're actually the first team left out of the NCAA tournament, meaning, yes, they are team number 69 in a 68-team field. After that, Chris Mack decides, you know what? We got to shake things up. Things are not going how I planned. And he decided to fire two assistant coaches. One of them is Dino Gaudio, the man who later attempted to extort him, but a guy that he has a long 30-plus-year relationship with dating back uh, you know, to the time that Chris Mack was a high school basketball player and Dino Gaudio actually recruited him. So Chris Mack gets the job at Louisville. Uh, at that point, he actually hires Dino Gaudio as an assistant. Dino Gaudio was the former head coach at Wake Forest, gets fired. He's working at ESPN forever. And as best I could tell, Chris Mack hired him kind of as a favor. Didn't seem like there was a long list of suitors for Dino Gaudio to get him back into coaching, but he comes back and coaches at Louisville. But after a couple lackluster seasons, they missed the NCAA tournament this year Chris Mack decides he wants to shake up his staff well Dino Gaudio who is a year and a half from retirement age about to be 66 he's 64 now I guess oh he is not having it he is not having Chris Mack fire him a year and a half before his retirement comes up and so he storms into Chris Mack's office and demands that he be paid through the end of his contract which again runs another 18 or so months demands that he gets paid, says, I don't really care. And oh, if you don't pay me, I am going to go to the school and I am going to go to the NCAA and tell them what you did, which was broke NCAA rules. Just one problem for our old friend Dino Gaudio. Uh, Chris Mack was recording that interview. He was recording the interview. He brought it to his superiors and in the process of basically uh, uh turning in his friend and admitting that minor NCA rules violations were broken. Uh he also got Dino Gaudio hit with some extortion charges. And so, like I said, Dino Gaudio uh was was able to get out of the extortion charges without going to jail time. We got closure on that. Chris Mack got a six-game suspension, which we'll get into in a minute. But the audio of that conversation where Dino Gaudio is trying to extort Chris Mack came out on Friday. It was incredible, okay? First of all, Dino Gaudio, don't know his background, not going to generalize or stereotype. This guy thought he was really like, he thought this was the godfather, and this is how it's going to get done, and this is how it's going to go down. And again, if you have not heard the audio, go to AaronTorresOnline.com. We have the audio up over there. But if you have not heard the audio, basically Dino Gaudio goes in and says, look, this is how it's going to get done. You're going to do it my way, or we're going to have problems. And Chris Mack is just like, oh, okay. Um, and, and Dino Gaudio uh, goes off. He goes crazy. Honestly, he sounds like kind of a deranged person, I'll be honest, and I actually feel bad. I mean, he references the fact that the last time this happened, I was a good soldier and this and that, and I got screwed. It's not going to happen again. I assume that was, when he, that was when he was fired at Wake Forest uh, back in, I believe it was 2011, and it is worth noting, Dino Gaudio took over for Skip Prosser, who was, of course, the late head coach who passed away uh, very unexpectedly. I believe he had a heart attack in the middle of the summer, Dino Gaudio takes over. He actually did a pretty good job as the head coach at Wake Forest. He took him to two NCAA tournaments and ends up getting fired. Wake Forest has never been the same since. So maybe he got the last laugh in all this. But in the conversation with Chris Mack, he basically says, "Like, look, I got screwed last time. Aaron, you know, I Aaron Torres assumed that means that that was when he was at Wake Forest. Like, I ain't gonna get screwed again. I don't care where I get the money. You better get me my money, though." Again, he says that we, I know of NCAA rules violations. The NCAA rules violations, as I said a minute ago, were minor. They were basically, they had student uh, uh, graduate assistants working out players, which is illegal. Uh, we've talked about it. We talked about it uh, uh, a few episodes ago. Listen, I'm not saying that we need to give Chris Mack a pass for breaking the rules. I've been to a lot of practices in a lot of different parts of the country. Uh, if, if I turned in every school that I saw uh, using graduate assistants or student managers during practice, we would have no college basketball because everybody does it. Apparently, also, there were some like 30 for 30 type recruiting videos made that apparently are some kind of NCAA rules violations. But the bottom line is Dino Gaudio goes in and says, I know about NCAA rules violations. And if you don't give me my money, I'm going to the NCAA. And let me just say this I actually do feel bad for Chris Mack in all this. First of all, like I said, the rules violations are minor. And two, you can really tell if you listen to the audio that he actually feels bad about the whole deal, right? Like, like he says multiple times, Dino, you're a friend. I like you. I respect you. I don't want to hurt you. He offers to pay Dino Gaudio's salary out of his own pocket, and you can tell that he's really hurt. But he's dealing with the the, the me- mechanisms of a madman, okay? He clearly doesn't know what to do. He clearly doesn't know what to say. He clearly doesn't know how to calm down his guy. And he also knows, oh, by the way, that he is, in fact, uh, recording the interview and that potentially his friend is going to be in a lot of trouble. And so I know what a lot of you are thinking. The guy broke NCAA rules. The guy recorded his buddy. But I do feel bad. If you listen to the interview, it's clear Chris Mack is like, dude, like, what do you, like, like, I got to do what's best for this program. I'll help you. I'll do what I can. I'll take care of you in any way that I can. But it's time for you to go, old man. And so I feel bad for Chris Mack. The Dino Gaudio audio is crazy. Also worth noting, by the way, also worth noting, Dino Gaudio had two great quotes in that audio. The first one, he calls Louisville's AD a toad. Incredible. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know the last time that I've heard anyone use the term "toad" in a derogatory sense. That sounds like kind of a middle school uh, insult. But Dino Gaudio calling the Louisville AD Vince Tyree a toad, and then on top of that, also threatening to go to the media, he drops uh, Jay Billis, Dick Vitel, and Frischillo, which I assume is Fran Frischilla. Kind of incredible. You know, us guys in the media, we think we're so important. Then you realize all these coaches, none of us know anyone else from from Jack. Squat, but uh, in conclusion crazy story and it is worth noting you know Chris Mack does have a six game suspension for this and when you look at this suspension and this particular season uh, this is not no big deal at all and let me explain is first of all what I would say is again for the 100th time I'm not saying it's okay to break NCA rules but in the grand scheme of what happened at Louisville uh, Chris Mack all things considered really it wasn't that bad in terms of what he did major rules have been broken in the past uh you know we have supposedly huge ass offers going out to high school players we got this going on we got that going on uh having your GAs work out guys is not that big of a deal Uh, but Chris Mack now has a six game suspension and I don't think that's nothing when you look at the fact that it's going to be early in the season um and he's going to have to miss some time And not only is he going to have to miss some time, I think you could tell by listening to the audio and then also just in general, I do think Chris Mack's starting to feel some heat. Like he basically said in the audio, I got to shake up this staff because we got to get this thing going. I didn't like the chemistry in the coaching staff, didn't like the chemistry in the locker room. We have got to be better But I'm telling you, he's starting to feel a little bit of heat, I believe, in that Louisville market. And is it fair? Is it unfair? I don't know. I've dealt with him a few times. I still think he's a really, really, really good coach. But I don't think there's any doubt that right now things are not going the way that anybody thought. Uh, his first year, they miss, they make the NCAA tournament, lose in round one. That's not his fault. He was kind of in that middle ground. It was two years after Patino left. They had David Padgett for one season, and so I don't blame him for that. And then in 2020, they had a team that finished second in the ACC, and and the NCAA tournament gets canceled. But last year, they go 13-7. and seven, And right now, there's just no real momentum on the recruiting trail where they, they, they haven't recruited the way that they want. Uh, they did get some nice guys in the transfer portal. But you start looking at teams going into next season, and there is not a reason, a lot of reason for excitement when it comes to this Louisville team. There are a lot of really good teams in college basketball this coming season. I've talked a lot about them. Uh, you know, Gonzaga's awesome. UCLA's awesome. Memphis is awesome. Texas is awesome. Kentucky's awesome. Alabama, Arkansas, Michigan. I mean, I'm going to miss a bunch. North Carolina, Duke. Louisville's a team that when I did my most recent top 25 after Imani Bates committed, Louisville not only did not make the top 25, they didn't even make the top 30 after that. And I think you're looking at at best a bubble team this year, going into the NCA tournament, and so if we come out of 2021-2022 without an NCA tournament for Chris Mack, that is now four years without a tourney bid. Now, granted, one of them would have happened in 2020 had there been an NCA tournament, but that was with Rick Pitino's players. That was with uh, uh, you know guys mostly that he didn't recruit, and I think he's going to be out of excuses coming out of this season if he does not make an NCA tournament. Don't know if he's quite on the hot seat. Uh, I would guess that he has at least two more years to get this thing right but I'm just telling you a fascinating story and it is one worth noting because a team that wasn't going to be very good is now not going to have their coach for six games next season including some key out of conference games and it is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch all right what I want to do now I want to take a very very quick break and I want to come back with Phil Steele from the Phil Steele magazine and if you love college football Phil Steele I I basically the way I would equate it is this he is basically like the John Rothstein of college football you will listen to this guy and you will be like wow this guy loves college football in a way that I don't know that I love anything okay he talks about the magazine how it takes uh, it's a a seven month process to get out the magazine how he talks to basically every head coach in college football how he goes through the depth chart player by player by player by player how he knows about uh, these obscure schools I actually uh recorded last week. He talks a little bit, a little bit about New Mexico. I mean, he taught he knows everything. So Phil Steele is coming up. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you: make sure that you are subscribed to the Aerator Sports Podcast. As I said off the top, we will be going to three episodes a week after Labor Day. I cannot wait. Football is here, and it just feels like that time where um you know, it just feels like that time where there is so much going on, and I cannot wait to keep going. Uh, so make sure that you are subscribed, because we are having good times ahead. As I said, the debut of my college football gambling podcast will be later this week, so make sure you're following AaronTorresOnline.com for details on that. Uh, but other than that, you know, just just a, bi- a college football season coming. Make sure that you are subscribed to this show, iTunes, Spotify, Uh, The Podcast Addict App, if you have an Android, the Podcast Addict App is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, as I just said, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go on the Aaron Torres page and rate and review the show. It really does help us move up those charts. And make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres, at Aaron Torres Pod, Aaron Torres Podcast, uh, uh, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com if you have any questions. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com if you have any questions. But that is all for this segment of the show. It is time to get to Phil Steele. I will be back Thursday. Look out for the College Football Gambling Podcast. It is coming. Let's get to Phil Steele. All right, joining me on the phone now, uh, a gentleman I am very excited to talk to. I have long appreciated, respected, and frankly enjoyed his work the publisher of Phil Steele magazine you can get it on newsstands basically anywhere uh that sells magazines news publications whatever Phil Steele is on the phone Phil how you doing today my man
1: you know I am doing great Aaron and uh so much better now than this time last year when we were wondering if we we're even playing football so it's uh definitely exciting we're gonna have fans in the stands and uh uh, we know no schedules for all the teams as opposed to last year <laughs> when the schedules were changing on a weekly basis.
2: Uh, I remember, yes, I, I remember various. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, I don't want to reflect back on last year, but uh, you, anyone who has seen your magazine, 350 pages. I mean, this thing is as in-depth as anything that I have ever seen in terms of preview magazines. I, you know, I'll tell you a quick funny side story. I grew up in Connecticut, and I don't want to date him or myself, but I remember years ago, this was probably about 15, 20 years ago, uh, maybe, not, maybe not 20, but probably about 15, uh, I was in my local Barnes & Noble reading all the college football preview magazines, and again, being in Connecticut, you run into people from ESPN from time to time, and I think I was in high school or college. And Reese Davis is standing next to me reading your magazine and saying, I don't know how this guy puts this thing together. So, uh, you know, take us through because, again, anyone who has grabbed your, you know, we call it a magazine, but it is just an encyclopedia, really, of college football. I've always been fascinated. How do you put it together? How long does it take? When does the process start? Take all the listeners through just everything that you do to get this thing to
1: newsstands. I appreciate that, Aaron. I appreciate you sharing that story with me, too. That was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, you know, the magazine's a seven-month process. Naturally, during the football season, I've got 12 TVs in front of me. I'm watching every game all day long on uh, every Saturday. I watch as many replays as I can during the week, read through all the articles. But uh, the magazine starts uh, fully with a day that some team seasons are complete. Wow. And what we do is we compile all the stories that were written about each team all year and put them into a report, and then we print off all the stories. So then – uh, to write a team, the first write-through process involves reading from the, the team stories from August through the end of the year, so you can really get a flavor of everything that just happened. Remind yourself of some things that happened during the season. Uh, you see how a quarterback was thought to be on his way out, then all of a sudden he's a star at the end of the year. Things like that. You write. Do the first write-through process where you uh, uh, talk about what the team, what type of shape the team was heading into last year, what happened, what type of shape are they heading into this year. The second write-through process uh comes in February, March, and April when we get the rosters and updates from the schools. Also, all the freshmen have si- been signed and added to the pages. So we go through and do a rewrite of uh, each position based on all the new players coming in and maybe maybe any players transferring out. And then I start talking to the coaches. And I talked to this year 110 of the 130 head coaches out there. And uh, I go through every player on every team. I send them over my sheets. They've got every player on there, all my notes, all the stats. And I say, put me in the order. Put me in the right order. The calls usually take about an hour, hour and a half they put all my players in the right order for me. They give me strengths and weaknesses on each player. And then we do the third write-through process after the coach's phone call. And then the final two weeks are pretty hectic. I've got all my power ratings set up now. I've got nine different sets of power ratings. It's a prediction process. So I've, I've talked to all the coaches. I've been through every team for the last seven months. And then we actually do the predictions in the last two weeks of the magazine. Send the thing off to the press the middle of June so we capture all the latest transfers. And uh, this year, it actually hit Barnes and Noble about a week, about a week, week and a half after we sent the last page to wow. the press. It was, it was already at Barnes and Nobles.
2: How often this—that was incredible, by the way. Uh, you know the the detail that goes into it, not just from the writing process, but from the preparation process all fall long and all winter long. Um, how often do you call a coach? And he just tells you flat out, you know more about my team than I do, or, oh, I, you know, I don't know that much about, you know more about my uh, third-string offensive tackle who redshirted last year than I do.
1: You know, it happened a lot last year because uh, I talked to a lot of first-year head coaches that didn't have spring practice. And that was a common refrain when I send them my sheets over. I'd say, okay, coach, put me in order. And they're like, you know, Phil, you know more about the team than I do right now because I haven't even seen these guys in pads yet uh, with the fact that nobody had practiced in the spring. So last year was very unusual, and I heard that refrain an awful lot last year from the first-year head coaches.
2: How about this this previous season? I mean, how how you know how refreshing was it? I've had a few coaches on this podcast here in the last you know month month and a half talking to Hugh Freeze, Jamie Chadwell, a few others. Just about how refreshing it is to be in pads, to have a normal spring. I know we kind of you know kind of tongue in cheek talked about how nice it is just to be back to normal. But in talking to coaches, what has the refrain been from them? You talked to a hundred ten of them uh, from basically you know whatever you said February, March through uh, early June, and and I assume that the energy the excitement for the season ahead Uh, i'm guessing it was probably unlike anything that you've probably experienced in all your years doing this
1: yeah absolutely you know let me take you back to last year i was wondering whether i was going to do a magazine at all last year and then i had done so much of the prep work when when my office got shut down for six weeks and none of the staff could even come in so i was just here toiling away by myself but we had already done about three four months worth of research on the the magazine had a lot of stuff in so i'm like you know what? I'll start talking to the coaches and I'll see if I'm putting out a magazine. And every coach I talked to was pretty much like. You put the ball in the field, we'll be ready to play. So I got pumped up and thought, we're definitely playing football. The announcements came that some conferences work, but in the long run, the coaches were right. They actually did play football last year, so uh, the way they they felt about it was there. But uh, I guess the common refrain this year is with the coaches is generally spring practice, a lot of drudgery. Everybody was just excited to be back at spring, including the players who were going through all the drills, uh, just to be back to normal, have spring practice, The coaches are excited. The players are excited. And I, you know, I tell you this. I think we're going to have the largest home field edges that we've had uh, maybe forever because fans got the to go into the games last year. They're going to come back and be louder and come back with attendance increases uh, over 2019. I think it's just going to be a spectacular year. Everybody's excited about it.
2: That's fascinating. I had, I mean, obviously I, I know fans. I've talked to fans that are excited about going, but the idea that it's going to even lead to more of a home field advantage into coming into this season – what are you uh, what what are what are you interested about in terms of the season itself I mean obviously there's a three four team group that's really separated itself from the sport Clemson Alabama Ohio State you know maybe uh, in uh, Georgia and Oklahoma is in that mix Notre Dame in any given year is there any team or program or conference that has you especially excited to sit down on Saturdays with those 12 TVs in front of you Phil and uh, you know get going because like you like you said it's just such a fascinating year it's going to be so different than anything we've ever experienced but at the end of the day those top two or three teams are still there and I'm curious who you see as a potential team or team program conference to keep your eyes on
1: well I tell you Aaron I am a a true college football fan that's all the only sport I follow so I get excited uh when week one when TCU is hosting Duquesne I'll be watching that and excited about it so I'm excited about every single game that's out there but uh, I think the one, a uh, couple things to look at, maybe the overall, you know, take it from a, a, a higher view, would be that uh, the four teams that made the playoff last year uh, all have just 9, 10, or 11 returning starters, and all four lose their starting quarterback. Phil, and talking can to the I coaches jump in this year, in for, can I jump in the for a common second. refrain was that, you know, Phil, generally we we struggle to get it too deep going in the spring, and this year we were able to run three full teams. Almost every school has 15, 16, yes. 17 all the way up to 20 returning starters coming back. They're all deeper than they've ever been before. And meanwhile, the four teams that were in the playoff last year are all 9, 10, 11 returning stars, all lose their quarterback. So I think the pack is going to catch up to the big boys this year. And maybe we don't necessarily see the same four in there, but. You know, for the uh, magazine, I I went with chalk. I went with Alabama, Oklahoma, Clemson, and uh, Ohio State as my final four.
2: See, that's really interesting, and it's something I've noticed in my prep work, too, and for people who don't fully understand, but the – you know, the, the NCAA giving teams the waiver where players can use an extra year of eligibility at a place like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, where you're traditionally losing so many guys with NFL potential. Those guys are, you know, those schools are losing a lot of guys because obviously they can go get paid, and make a lot of money to do it in the NFL. And that's something that I noticed too. And I hadn't really correlated the two is that, um, you know, whether it's it's the quote unquote, you know, middle of the pack teams in, certain, in conferences, you know, I think Wake Forest was was one that came to mind that I remember. I seem to remember 17, 18, 19 starters coming back, and I've really noticed it at the group of five level, Phil. So that's something just to think about. That That's really interesting that I hadn't considered is that, that the, the gap for at least this one season, maybe two, three seasons with this extra year of eligibility may be narrowing. I hadn't considered, like I said, I hadn't correlated the fact that you're absolutely right. There's just so many teams that, as you said, 17, 18, 19 starters back, but the Ohio States, Clemsons, and Alabamas aren't necessarily those teams.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that you brought up Wake Forest, because when I talked to Coach Clawson, going over the team with him, uh, he mentioned that they had struggled at the end of the year the past few years. And if you go back and take a look at the last uh, five years, Uh, I believe they've lost 10 of their 15 games in the final three games the last five years. And he said a lot of that is because they haven't had the depth to overcome the amount of attrition that you have during the course of a season. Everybody gets beat up during the year. Everybody suffers injuries. But the teams with the least amount of depth probably feel it the most at the end of the year. And then he said that this year he felt the team went 3-4 deep and that maybe this year they wouldn't wear down at the end of the season like they have the last five years. So that's going to be something very interesting to look at.
2: So who are some of those other teams in the the power five structure that we're not saying they're going to go 11 and one and compete for a playoff, but, you know, in your mind might be better than expected uh, simply because of the fact that they do have added depth. They do have added experience with that extra COVID waiver.
1: Well, I'm going to throw three teams out at you that I think no one is expecting necessarily to be in the playoff situation that all have a surprisingly good chance of getting there. Uh, the first one is Texas A&M. And with Texas A&M, uh, last year they were my number one surprise team. They were coming off a five-loss season. My number one surprise team is a team that uh, is not in the preseason top ten that I think has a shot of making the playoff. A&M nearly got there. At the end of the year, there was, here was Selection Sunday. Ohio State or Texas A&M, Ohio State got in. A&M just missed out. Now they lose four starters on the offensive line, but Coach Jimbo Fisher told me that he felt this year's offensive line is actually uh, more talented than last year's, and in fact, he told me that all five offensive linemen are NFL-caliber guys. Meanwhile, last year, the four guys they lose... Only one of them got drafted, so it is a more talented offensive line. And if that unit comes together by week six when they host Alabama, I give them a shot of winning that game. And if they win that game, they have an excellent shot at bursting into the playoffs this year. So keep your eyes on A&M. They'll have that college station home field advantage. And I like Haynes King, their quarterback. I think he's going to have a really good season this year. They've got an outstanding defense. They had the best defense in the SEC last year. Look out for A&M. And then two long-shot teams for you that really have the talent and the schedule to potentially run the table. The first one is Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin only averaged 3.9 yards per carry last year. They usually average 5 or 6 yards a carry. And part of the reason was an inexperienced offensive line. Part of the reason was they didn't really have a feature running back. They were replacing a two-time... Uh, a couple thousand-yard rusher, and uh, what happened was Jalen Berger started to emerge at the end of the year, but this year they've got what I call four VHTs, including Berger, Uh, so I think they're going to have a much-improved run game with a more veteran offensive line. Also, their quarterback, Graham Mertz, hit 20-21 in the opener last year, and then uh, had COVID and missed a couple weeks of practice. and wasn't really quite the same the rest of the year. I think he'll be one of the better QBs in the country this season. The defense is going to be strong, as always, and then when you look at their schedule, their four Big Ten road games are all against teams that had losing records last year. Uh, Notre Dame is a game which is a neutral site. They're a one-and-a-half-point favorite. They could very well be favored in all 12 games this year. And if they get to the Big Ten championship game against Ohio State, keep in mind in both 17 and 19, they gave Ohio State all they wanted. So they are a team that could sneak in. To the national title picture, and then the other one would be the Washington Huskies. And I know Washington is picked fourth in the Pac-12. I don't even think they're in the preseason top twenty in the AP. But what I like about Washington is they have a big offensive line, averages about three hundred twenty-eight pounds per man. A deep set of running backs. They've got two veteran QBs. Uh, one of the better tight ends in the country in K. Otten. And then defensively, Jimmy Lake always produces a great defense. The last two years, he's had just two and six returning starters. This year he's got eight starters back on D. They'll have a top-notch defense. Now, as I mentioned, I think home field's going to be huge this year. Well, the schedule-wise, they avoid USC and Utah, the top two teams out of the South. Their toughest two games all year are Oregon and Arizona State. They get them both at home. So I've actually got Washington favorite in all 12 games this year. And back in 2016, they were my number one surprise team, and they made the playoff that year. So watch out. Keep your eyes on the Huskies this year.
2: If you cannot hear the passion for college football in Phil Steele's voice, and this does not make you run to your nearest grocery store or Barnes & Noble to get the Phil Steele magazine, I, I, I don't even know what to say, Phil. So that was incredible. You brought up something interesting that we talked in, in a moment ago about The idea of how COVID impacted practices and spring practice last year and the fall last year. How about with your projections this year? Because it does feel like there's kind of that push-pull of trying to figure out, um, you know, how... Uh, you, you mentioned Wisconsin, right? Big opening win. Next day, the whole program comes down with COVID. Paul Christ is out. Graham Mertz, their starting quarterback, is out. Um, you know, there, there is no practice for two or three weeks. So just how in your own projections, not just putting together depth charts and all that stuff, but in actual trying to figure out who you like, who you don't, how did COVID factor in? Because that's such a variable that we've never experienced before, we'll never experience again. But there were teams that got 11, 12, 13 games in last year, and there are teams that got uh, two, three, four, or in the case of my alma mater, UConn, zero. Well, I'll ask you about them in a second. But, um, you know, how did COVID factor into how you projected this coming season?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think when you take a team like Miami of Ohio, which last year only played three games. It's really tough to factor in uh, the effect of that. You know, do they, the returning starters, are they really returning starters if they only played and started three games last year? As you touched on, there were some teams that, you know, Coastal Carolina is a team that got in every spring practice last year. Guess what? Coastal Carolina went from last place. All the way up to running the table and uh, uh, having an undefeated season winning the uh, Sun Belt title. So it's, uh, it was one of those things where you do have to look at that. Now I always have uh, analytics in the magazine where I say, okay, last year this team benefited from double-digit turnovers. So they've got about a 75 to 80% record of not getting those breaks this year. Yes. They'll probably be a little bit weaker. And vice versa, teams that had double-digit negative turnovers will likely not turn it over as much and have a better record this year. You can go through all the different categories I put. One of them is starts lost injury. And that's how I would chalk up a lot of the COVID stuff. I, I had have, have a blog on philseal.com uh, which goes over all the starts lost to injury last year. And you could see teams that had very few starts lost to injury. And there were other teams uh, right at the top of the list was a, a team like Southern Miss, which had 75 starts lost to injury last year. And they not only had 75 starts lost to injury, they lost their head coach after week one. Then they lost their interim head coach wow. the fifth week of the season. So you got to think a team like that, which had absolutely zero luck and only won three games we'll have a much better season this year. So
2: real quick, we'll get you out of here on a couple quick ones. I mean, in terms of a team that could potentially be overrated, you talk about the crazy turnover differentials. That was one thing in prepping a team like Indiana last year. Uh, had this insane turnover margin. I think they averaged like two and a half interceptions a game, which, you know, credit their defensive backs coach, whoever it is, Probably you probably know off the top of your head, but probably is not replicable this year. Is that the kind of team that had an incredible year last year? We got some Hoosiers fans that listen I don't want to piss them off here first thing in the morning but uh, you know is that a team or are there teams like that you mentioned the turnover stuff and that was one that jumped to mind as I've kind of gotten ready for the season
1: yeah the the potential is there especially when you look at the schedule that Indiana plays this year now I do think Indiana is a very talented team they've got an outstanding secondary outstanding linebacking core Michael Penix if he stays healthy Uh, one of the top quarterbacks in the country, Uh, and I like their offensive line as well, but they do have to play at Iowa, at Penn State, Ohio State at home. Those are three games they're going to be an underdog in, so I don't know if they're going to be able to get as high as they did last year. Uh, Another team to look at potentially would be a team like Florida. Remember, Florida was having a great season last year. We talked about inexperience. Well, they only have five starters back on offense, five on defense. And they draw a killer schedule this year, whereas Georgia avoids Alabama, Texas A&M, and LSU out of the West. Florida draws Alabama. They also have to play LSU on the road. They only have three home games in the SEC in the Swamp because Georgia's in a neutral site, and yet they're still up there ranked near the top ten in the AP poll. I think that might be a little high for them based on the talent they have returning and the overall schedule they have.
2: Last one from me, Phil. PhilSteel.com. Make sure you get the preview magazine. The last one for me. What does Phil Steele do the day that the, the magazine goes to the printer? I mean, do you just have the biggest margarita ever? Do you uh, uh, go golfing? Do you, what, like, you go by the pool? What you, like Because, as I said, anybody listening can hear the passion in your voice that you have for college football. And I just want to know what Phil Steele does to enjoy a little downtime because there is no downtime putting together this 350-page uh, behemoth, especially the way you described it.
1: Yeah, you hit it right on the head. That is, uh, the second to last page is out and done. We've just spent seven months at a frantic pace putting out the magazine. Uh, I definitely head out to dinner. Uh, I take my daughter and, uh, you know, I, I have a few cold ones, let's put it that way. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's definitely a relaxing evening and one where, uh, there's just such a, a relief that the, uh, the deadline is over with. And, uh, it's, it's actually, I, I've got two fun months of the year. Uh, they'd be July and August, and I just get to talk radio shows most of the month. Mm-hmm. You know, do eight to ten radio shows a day. Uh, naturally, I've got a lot of work to do, but it's uh, it's nowhere near like it is for the magazine.
2: He is Phil Phil Steele. Uh, make sure to follow him on Twitter, at PhilSteele042, and the Phil Steele Magazine. It is available on com as well as basically anywhere you can get books or magazines. Phil... um This was just an absolute pleasure, man. Uh, I am going to be bugging you at this time next year, maybe throughout the season when I need some insight on, uh, you know, uh, Duquesne or or, uh, uh, New Mexico State or whatever. But this was fun. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. I know you got nine other calls today to do. So thank you for making some time.
0: Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.